0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics.
0: That's plushcare.com slash weightloss, plushcare.com slash loss Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day Sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's borough.com slash ACAST. borough.com slash ACAST.
1: This is episode number eight in our series for 2019. And today's date is Friday, March the 22nd. First, I'll be talking to Mayfair 101 CEO, James Mawinney, who'll be talking about the Mayfair 101 IPO Wealth Fund, which has raised over $30 million from predominantly SMSFs. James believes there's been an expansion in the breadth of investment scope from self-managed super funds, and this is anticipating an uptick in investments in technology, both directly and indirectly. And I'll also be talking to RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson, looking at the state of the economy in the lead-up to the election, and what it means for the federal budget, due in 10 days' time. But first, let's talk to James Mawin. Okay. well, uh, James, um, tell us about Mayfair 101's IPO Wealth Fund.
2: Yes, certainly. Um, We set up IPO Wealth just coming up to about two years ago because we saw a big gap in the market for uh, wholesale and sophisticated investors, um, or as some people like to refer to them as as high net worth investors, Um, mainly because the banks are offering term deposit rates that really aren't that much better than inflation. There seems to be a big shift away from the banks at the moment, particularly with a lot of fintech companies online, coming online and that sort of thing. Um, And banks not really recognising that this um, tidal wave of people uh, and particularly uh, younger generation shifting away from the bank um, was coming up. We thought we'd be well positioned to set something up that um, really competes for the banks against um, primarily term deposit money.
1: So how much have you raised?
2: Uh, I think we've just clocked over about 40 mil or thereabouts. And this is all
1: from uh, predominantly SMSFs?
2: Uh, look it's a mix between individuals smsfs Um, we're getting a lot of companies these days um, but the the bulk is actually individuals and then the second highest um, subscription rate comes through smsfs but that's certainly where we're seeing again a a bit of a shift Um, we are getting more smsf holders wanting to park money with us generally longer term uh, which is really pleasing to see
1: right and uh and so what sort of uh investment scope
2: do you offer yeah, sure. So, we operate the fund as a, a debt fund. Um, when someone uh, invests in the fund, they're basically buying units in a unit trust. Um, those unit, The unit price of those units has never varied uh, above or below a dollar um, since inception. Um, and so, what happens is that when that money comes in, we lend that money to uh, Mayfair 101's group of companies, which then invests that money Um, And Mayfair 101, to give you a bit of background on that, uh, it's an investment group that's been around since 2009. So we're we're basically 10 years in business now. And uh, almost ironically, we've also got investments now spanning 10 countries around the world. So which countries? Uh, We've got so Mayfair's got currently investments, obviously in Australia, but that certainly isn't our focus. Uh, We've got some interests in India, uh, London, the United States, Singapore, Sri Lanka, um, Malaysia, Hong Kong, Israel, more recently Italy uh, in a real estate related project. Um, Given that the market has come back quite a lot there, uh, we've managed to pick up a very interesting uh, piece of real estate, which uh, we'll share more publicly over the next couple of months. And I think I've missed one. But um, yeah, I think that'll give you a pretty good feel for the fact as, as to how diverse we are. And uh, it's also not just across real estate. Um, we're very much into the fintech space. We've also got some interest in uh, payments-related companies. We've got a very interesting transaction out of uh, India, which we've been involved with for a couple of years now. Um, it's India's largest B2B payments company, um, and uh, they're really kicking a lot of goals at the moment, um, given that um, they, they signed on with Visa as an exclusive partner late last year too.
1: And uh, haven't you invested in the Israeli smart city tech outfit Bright Innovations?
2: We have indeed, yes. And Tell us about that. Yeah, so Bright approached our group, uh, again, probably about two years ago or thereabouts, um, wanting to list their company on the ASX. Uh, We provided them uh, with some advisory services to assist them with that process um, through one of our wholly owned subsidiaries called the Public Listing Co., um, that business has historically worked with businesses to um, help them along the path of an IPO, um, and Bright obviously fitted the bill for that. Um, they're a very interesting and quite an exciting technology company um, that assists in the rollout of smart cities, um, not so much just uh, from a physical infrastructural perspective, but more so from a technological perspective where they've got um, a platform that basically enables um, a whole range of different software applications to be operated through what is very much similar to like an app store, um, or as they call it, an app store for the outdoors. Um, so that business is progressing well towards an IPO on the ASX at the moment through um, a, a range of the partners that we work with locally in Australia.
1: And they, they plan to list actually on the Australian Stock Exchange
2: soon? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So we've provided them with some Uh, pre-IPO financing um, to assist them with that process. So we're one of the main investors behind that, um, as were a range of other funds and um, high net worth investors, um, predominantly on the east coast of Australia.
1: Right. And uh, you've also invested in the Australian Dining Rewards app, Liven, have you
2: not? We have indeed, yes. Yeah, sure. So Liven's a very um, exciting transaction for us. Uh, I've worked closely with the founders of that business um, and my team has really for now coming up to three years. Um, and we've made a, a pretty sizable investment in that company. Um, the business basically helps um, uh, in some ways take people back into restaurants where the likes of Uber Eats and Deliveroo and Menu Log and that sort of thing are taking people out of restaurants. And so in, in some ways they're a bit of a white knight um, or Night in Shining Armour, should I say, um, where a lot of the restaurants have um, certainly in recent, recent months in the last year or so be complaining that um, their margins and their brand, are, more importantly, are also being eroded by these um, tech giants that are really trying to really uh, override their, uh, the local corner restaurant's brand with their own such that when people say well what did you have for dinner last night people say i had uber eats as opposed to you know joe's pizza so liven helps gets people gets people back into the restaurants um, that business as you may be aware is currently currently undertaking an initial coin offering um, and we've been helping them with that process over the last six months or thereabouts um, and they're having a lot of success with that and it, At face value, it looks like it's actually going to be one of the largest, if not the largest, ICO that's been undertaken in Australia to date.
1: And it's basically you you just uh, tap your bill. You you pay your bill quickly using uh, the Liven application. Isn't that the way it works?
2: Yeah, it it is. So it's a very streamlined way of uh, paying a bill. Um, But one of the key advantages of the Liven platform is that they've got a very sophisticated but easy to use uh, inbuilt rewards program. So if you look at the likes of, say, Visa or MasterCard, um, they are really a payments company. Um, but then if you look at Liven, um, they are also a, a payments company, except they facilitate a faster means of transacting, um, and they actually are able to provide a larger... Um, some people like to call it a discount or a rebate, but the reality is what the is what the getting um, is effectively like a credit, which they can then use um, in other restaurants universally across the Liven platform. So you're not really uh, locked into one particular group or or chain of restaurants per se. Um, And that's really what's making them um, have a really high uptake rate at the moment. And I'm actually over in London at the moment. Um, We've got some relationships over here that we're helping plug them into so that they can uh, move quickly to roll out into London in the second half of this year too.
1: Well, what's exciting about uh, the IPO Wealth Fund is uh, that... And Mayfair is that you're actually helping companies innovate and you're helping startups?
2: Yeah, look, we are. Um, I, 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 I guess I want to somewhat de emphasise the startup aspect. Yes, there are some startups in our portfolio um, and some quite successful ones at that, but that being said, um, we typically like to work with businesses, um, and, and certainly a good example is Live and where initially it started as an Australian business, but we've really helped expand their horizons and make a lot of introductions globally, given that Mayfair really is operating at a global level. Um, and so what that does is it, it opens um, a lot of the founders and the management team's eyes to the opportunities that exist overseas by way of accessing funding, uh, but certainly in the technology space, accessing a much larger user base um, because we've got pre-existing relationships that we've been working on there uh, for quite some years now. Um, and and, and some pretty serious relationships with investment banks and um, sort of top-level executives right through to former chairman of major investment banks and things like that that we've helped appoint to boards of our clients' companies. It it gives us a really good, unique opportunity to work with businesses that do want to expand their horizons into the overseas markets and um, where, where we can provide not just access to expertise and contacts, but also access to funding. Um, It's very much a winning combination that's working well for us. That's fantastic. And uh, where where do you see the future of Mayfair? Uh, Look, I think we're on a... In fact, we're definitely on a formula that's working very well. Um, We don't really need to steer too much uh, beyond that. Um, We are starting to do uh, more, or take more of an interest in the real estate space um, just to create a bit more balance in our portfolio. Um, But other than that, Um, We we have very much a good sweet spot where we work with a finite set of clients. Um, We focus on making sure that we're always adequately resourced and not stretching ourselves too thin. Um, Maintain very strong cash reserves, which are important when you're operating a fund. Um, And, yeah, just stick to our knitting and keep working on the relationships that we've been developing over um, quite some years now because it's working very well for us.
1: And with the status of the banks, uh, it looks like you're going to get more work coming in.
2: Uh, We're very much expecting so, (laughs) yes, Leon. So, um, yeah, it's interesting every day that goes past, particularly with the Royal Commission that's just happened recently, um, our inquiry rates um, shot up quite considerably, um, and we're finding also that our average investor size um, is uh, heading nicely in the right direction. So particularly as well as you can probably imagine when we set this up two years ago, we were a much lesser-known brand in the market, um, but now... Uh, investors are seeing us in a lot of different places around the country um, to the point that we're actually now uh, working on establishing the equivalent of IPO wealth uh, over in the UK and Europe so that we can access funds over here um, at a much uh, broader scale given that we've got um, a series of transactions that are already sitting in our existing portfolio um, in businesses that are wanting to provide credit. So we're working on setting up a credit fund over here Um, It'll be called M12 Global. Um, There's already a bit of publicity around it uh, online. Um, We're working with a team of people over here to get this off the ground in the second half of this year too.
1: Well, James, that sounds very exciting. And uh, we'll be watching uh, Mayfair 101 with great interest. And thank you very much for your time.
2: My pleasure. Thanks, Leon. Enjoy your day.
1: And now let's talk to economist Professor Sinclair Davidson. Sinclair-Davidson, we've had all sorts of dire economic figures coming out of late uh, with GDP and retail sales and the housing market, uh, all in the lead up to an election. What does it all mean?
3: Um, it's it's actually all good fun, and uh, as I always argue, um, one of the great things about Australia is that we do actually have arguments and debates about the economy, which I think is a, a good thing. Um, of course, that means uh, we also have a, a lot of arguments and debate about things that that may or more may be more or less meaningless and what have you. So, for example, last week we heard we are in a per capita GDP recession. Now. This is a nice piece of mischievousness. Um, I am not at all thinking that we are in a recession. I mean, that's just, that's just pure silliness. But we are in a situation where the economy is slowing down. Um, and there's a regular business cycle. Uh, we've had housing prices coming off for about a year. We've had um, loans uh, being made to housing. Uh, I think it's down 20% or so uh, uh, over the last year. Um, but nonetheless, the, the employment market is looking much better. Wage growth isn't great, but at the same time, for people who want to get jobs, there are jobs out there for them, which is not something we were thinking a year ago. A year ago, we were thinking, G manufacturing is, is, is going down. So uh, all up, it's, it's, it's mixed signals, as it more or less always is, mixed signals.
1: Right, right. But all of this uh, com- coincides with the election campaign. How do yes. you think that will play out?
3: Um, I think as all election campaigns play out, we are going to have shock and awe, fear-mongering, silliness all around, um, People's making all sorts of statements. And I have to say it, it is all good fun, and it should be seen as being all good fun. Um Fundamentally, however, I, I think the economy is still in pretty good shape. There are, there are headwinds, of course. Um, but we are going to see – I suspect we are going to see an election being called the day after the budget comes down.
1: What do you think the government has planned in the budget? Obviously, there will have to be some giveaways. Obviously, there will have to be some tax cuts, yes. I would
3: say. I think we are looking at tax cuts, and I think we are looking at spending. Um, which, of course, are are two things which don't happen together at the same time very well very often. Um, But we have to have, um, from the government's perspective, we have to have a good news budget. So we will have a good news budget. We will have to have a return to surplus. It will have to be a convincing return to surplus, bearing in mind governments always make dodgy assumptions around GDP growth and all those sorts of things in budget papers. But, of course, we would also have the pre-election economic uh, and fiscal outlook coming out I th- well, if if they call it the day after the budget, which has to be a good news budget, it will be coming out about two weeks later. I think in terms of the timing when you time back when you come back from an election, so we will also then have the government's budget being more or less audited by the head of treasury and the head of the finance department. And, of course, if everybody's expecting a change in government, that, of course, puts pressure on them to be a little bit more honest and a little bit more careful than perhaps normally. Um, so it's, it's, it's we're going to have a lot of numbers being thrown around. There's going to be a blizzard of information. And, of course, this also then makes us think about where the policies are. I mean, I don't think you can credibly say the economy is going to grow at 3%. Um, which is what the RBA's view is right now. I, 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 this is simply not a plausible number. The economy is slowing down. We are going to have to talk about what we're going to do to get money flowing through the economy again. The credit crunch is a problem. This has fallen out of the the um, Royal Commission, which, of course, bearing in mind, we're all talking about the politics of the, of the Royal Commission now. We're not actually talking much about the economics of the Royal Commission. Um, and just this week, we saw the the story where the coalition... Are being reported to having backflipped on brokers, and of course they do because um, if you legislate brokers out of business now, uh, as you say, a month, two months before an election, people are going to be losing their jobs in halfway through the next term of government, or all the people who actually work for brokers right now. So it's it's, it's all very interesting in terms of how this is going to play out. Um, But if you are worried about the economy slowing down, you've then got to be thinking, well, the Labor Party are talking about introducing a lot more taxes. Is it a good time to increase taxes in a slowing economy? Probably not. Um, is the economy slowing that much that we need to have emergency tax cuts, which I suspect we will see in the, uh, in the coalition budget? They will probably bring forward some of the, uh, um, the le- legislative tax cuts already. Is that a good idea? Well, probably not either. You know, so we're you know, going to have sound fury, excitement, lots of economics debate, which, of course, makes economists very excited.
1: So where specifically do you see the tax cuts happening?
3: It would have to be at the personal income tax level. Um, It would also be aimed towards older Australians, I would have imagined, Um, quite simply because the Labor Party's uh, changes to to franking credits and also around – capital gains discounts, will also be aimed at older Australians. So we'll be looking at tax cuts, which probably favour older Australians. We'll be looking at spending, which goes to things such as infrastructure. Uh, There might be stuff around energy policy. Um, There's a lot of talk about building a power station in, in Queensland. Now, I'm not convinced this is necessarily a good idea, but nothing like losing office to focus the mind.
1: Nonetheless, the Nationals are calling for the government to either either underwrite power stations, yes, or
3: build one, or
1: build them with subsidies.
3: Yes, 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 yes. And and um, I, I think we do have an issue around the the power stations we have in Australia are aging, um, but we actually need to have a long, hard, serious look at it. Not in the context of a culture war, which energy policy the last – well, I would say since the 2007 election. Energy policy in Australia has been sort of, uh, dare I say it, a lot more uh, uh, light than heat or heat than light um, and not good heat either. Um, so there, there, there are arguments for replacing existing power stations. I don't know if there is an argument for building a brand-new coal-powered fire, uh, power station. There, there are also arguments around thinking about nuclear. Um, so there, these are points that should be thought about, discussed in a sane, rational manner, certainly not a demand from a minority party in a coalition government three months out from an election. Uh, that's not where good policy decisions are made.
1: Do you see sort of spending in areas like education and uh, uh, health?
3: Um, it's. I, I would imagine there, there will probably be the usual runaround around health. Um, the the previous coalition governments have done very well in spending money on apprenticeships. They really like the idea of apprenticeships. Whether or not you want to spend more money on. On the university system, I would imagine uh, Labor have already promised more money to the university system. The Coalition are currently got a freeze on on money to the university system. They could unlock that freeze, but I, I would be thinking that's not that's not where their natural constituency is. That's not what their natural consist, uh, constituency really cares about.
1: Nonetheless, there is an issue about training for jobs.
3: Yes, there is an issue. So we, we are looking probably money for apprenticeships. We might also be looking at money for preschool, those sorts of things, getting women into the workforce. Um, those are the sorts of things that people actually like, sort of the, the uh, dare I say, practical aspects of an education system as opposed to the, the university, high school, primary school. And to be quite honest, I... I I don't really like seeing federal government spending money on high schools and primary schools and universities. I mean that's really a state government function, and state government should be doing that. So The state should be, should pick, picking up the slack there, and to a large extent, to be fair, in primary and secondary education, the states do actually spend a lot of money on 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 education in those areas, and of course that's where they should be spending the money.
1: So all up, Bobby, I mean, so we're going to have a lot of debate about uh, to what extent the economy is
3: slowing down.: Yes. Yes, we are. And of course, it's, uh, uh, the, the, the coalition wants to run on their track record. Um, but of course, at the same time, there, there was a magnificent article by, by Craig Emerson this week, but more or less saying, you know, it's all very well saying, you know, uh, job creations at a very high level. But if you had a job at the beginning in 2013, you've still got a job in 2019, but your wages haven't really gone up that much. So what is it for people who are already in work? And um, I think there, if if the coalition want to get serious, um, that's where they have to offer tax cuts. So your take-home wage will be going up, uh, which, of course, is a much harder sell to to, to make and, of course, needs to be sold in the context of a sound fiscal budget situation. So I'm thinking we will see a a, a budget declared to be comfortably in in surplus – Um, in the the next few weeks, and the election will be called probably the very next day to stop the the opposition from having a reply to that in the Parliament.
1: And so uh, when do you expect the surplus will be in place?
3: I, I suspect they'll be announcing it for next year. Maybe not quite the, the, the current year. There will, it'll be uh, a bit of a negative. It'll be announced for next year with, of course, the threat of, oh, my God, if you dare to change the government, next year's very minuscule surplus, and the bigger ones after that will disappear. So it'll be very much a, a balancing, tipping kind of act. And, of course, this is the game everybody plays.
1: Well, Sinclair Davidson, it'll be fascinating to watch, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what's happening in the news Well, British Prime Minister Theresa May will ask the European Union to delay Brexit by at least three months after her plans for another vote on a twice-defeated divorce deal were thrown into crisis by a surprise intervention by the Speaker of Parliament. Nearly three years after Britain voted to leave the EU, its departure is uncertain. Possible outcomes still range from a long postponement, leaving with May's deal, a disruptive exit without a deal, or even another referendum just days before the March 29 exit date that May set two years ago by submitting a formal Article 50 request to leave, and days before a crucial EU summit. She was on Tuesday writing to European Council President Donald Tusk to ask for a delay. And the market has been hit with some US officials fearing that China is reneging on certain trade concessions. People familiar with the talks told Bloomberg that they're concerned China's pushback and stalling discussions could threaten President Donald Trump's chance at a boost ahead of his 2020 re-election bid. Beijing negotiators have reportedly shifted their stance because they haven't received convincing assurances from Washington that US tariffs imposed on China's exports will be lifted. And the heat is on Facebook and other social media platforms to stop hosting extremist propaganda, including terrorist events, after Friday's deadly attacks on two mosques in New Zealand were live-streamed. Australia's Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, urged the group of 20 nations to use a meeting in June to discuss a crackdown. At the same time, New Zealand media has reported the nation's biggest banks have pulled their advertising from Facebook and Google. We cannot simply sit back and accept that these platforms just exist and what is said is not the responsibility of the place where they're published, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern told Parliament on Tuesday. They are the publisher, not just the postman. There cannot be a case of all profit, no responsibility. Facebook said it had been working directly with New Zealand police and across the technology industry to help counter hate speech and the threat of terrorism. The lone shooter, accused of killing 50 people in the New Zealand city of Christchurch, live-streamed the murder. And the video continued to be widely available on a range of platforms hours after the attack. The suspect, an Australian, uploaded his hate-filled manifesto online shortly before launching his assault. It's the latest example of social media companies struggling to keep offensive content from sites they're making money out of, generating billions of dollars in revenue from advertisers. It's a problem that's seen Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg grilled by Congress. The shooting video was viewed fewer than 200 times during its live broadcast, and no users reported the video during that time, Facebook Vice President and Deputy General Counsel Chris Sonderby said in a blog post. It was reported to the company 29 minutes after the video started and viewed 4,000 times before being removed, he said. And Deutsche Bank, Europe's once-dominant financial institution, threw in the towels on years of failed turnaround efforts. It has agreed to begin government-backed merger talks with Commerzbank. Both banks have spent the past decade struggling to cope with the legacies of the financial crisis and making little progress. A merger would probably create the fourth largest bank in Europe, behind HSBC, PNB Paribas and Credit Agricole. By bowing to officials' desire to forge a durable German lender with global reach out of two troubled firms, Deutsche Bank's leaders are hardly putting their ways behind them. Massive job cuts, political turbulence, weakening European economy, US probes into its dealings with Donald Trump, and a Herculean integration, not to mention sceptical clients and investors, lie ahead if they reach a deal. The companies confirmed the move to deeper discussions in statements on Sunday, capping months of speculation and behind-the-scenes talks with the Finance Ministry. Both firms have struggled to restore revenue growth after deep cuts to their investment banking units. An economic slowdown that has pushed back expectations for higher interest rates has added urgency to the situation. For Berlin, combining the two would create a new national champion lender that could support the country's huge export industry and compete for international business with the giant Wall Street banks. For the lenders, it offers the opportunity to gain financial scale, cut costs, and combine technology. And house prices across Australia are falling even faster than they did during the global financial crisis. The Australian Bureau of Statistics on Tuesday reported house prices across the nation's capitals fell 2.4% in the December quarter to be down 5.1% through 2018. In dollar terms, almost $270 billion has been wiped from the value of the nation's housing stock since March last year and 179 billion dollars has evaporated from New South Wales homes Victorian home values have fallen by 104 billion dollars The Australian Taxation Office is ramping up its enforcement activities and will undertake 4500 audits of taxpayers it considers a high risk because they overclaim or don't declare income related to rental properties such as Airbnb The ATO audits will relate to their 2017-18 returns for rental properties. The agency is also improving its data matching and in future will use property management reports from real estate agents. ADO Assistant Commissioner Adam Kendrick said it would audit 2017-18 financial year tax returns relating to rental investments that its data analytics systems had flagged as potentially problematic. He said about 85% of about 2.2 million annual tax returns relating to rental properties were lodged through a tax agent so the ATO would also work with tax professionals to make more taxpayers aware of potential errors. An AMP chairman, David Murray, will take a 22% pay cut on account of the embattled wealth company's shrinking footprint and reduce complexity, as new chief executive Francesco de Ferrari seeks to simplify the business. The AMP board has given in-principle approval to reduce Mr Murray's annual fee, including superannuation, to about $660,000, from its current level of about $850,000. The change will take place from January the 1st, 2020. The $7 billion company was significantly reduced in size following the sale of its life insurance business to Resolution Life and, according to the annual report released on Wednesday, the board anticipate further repayment of the strategy in 2019 would justify Mr Murray's reduced pay package. But Mr Murray's own re-election at AMP's shareholder meeting in May is far from assured, and he won't be the only one taking a pay cut. And the Commonwealth Bank has reached a settlement with the Australian Taxation Office, following a prolonged dispute over $100 million in claims it had made for support with research and development related to technology overall. While the terms of the settlement were not disclosed, ADO Deputy Commissioner Rebecca Saint said it was a reminder to companies that just because a project is large, expensive or risky, does not mean it necessarily qualifies as R&D for the purposes of a tax incentive. And in the wake of the Royal Commission, Westpac will exit the troubled personal advice sector and join its big four rivals in abandoning the once-dominant model of vertical integration. Westpac is expected to cut 900 full-time jobs in the process. The bank said the plan would see it exit a high-cost, loss-making business that would produce $280 million in savings by 2020. The news follows Westpac's admission that since November 1, 2018, it had received 1,800 customer complaints, with a majority coming from the wealth division. The bank did not reveal the consideration being paid for the personal financial advice business being sold to boutique Viridian. However, it's believed to be less than $50 million. An embattled wealth company, IOOF, is facing a shareholder class action over its alleged failure to inform shareholders about its fallout with a regulator over the alleged breach of superannuation laws. The shareholder class action, led by former Morris Blackburn partner, Damien Scatini, now with Quinn Emanuel, and backed by US-based litigation funder Regency Group, is expected to be filed within weeks. Among those who have expressed interest in the class action include sophisticated investors and retail investors, although it will be run as an open class action, meaning shareholders who bought the IOOF shares between May 2015 and December 2018 will be part of the action unless they opt out. The class action is based on the Hayne Royal Commission's findings of possible contravention of trustee duties under the ASIC Act. The action will allege IOOF was aware its conduct would have significant legal and regulatory risk and between May 2015 and December 2018 it breached its continuous disclosure obligations to shareholders and engaged in misleading or deceptive conduct. Bunnings is launching a full e-commerce store. It has opened its first click and collect service ahead of launching a fully transactional online store within 18 months. After selling about 20,000 special audits, including bulky goods such as sheds and children's playgrounds online last February and establishing a pop-up store on eBay in January, Bunnings is currently testing click and collect at its Craigieburn store in Melbourne. This will be ahead of launching a full e-commerce offer in 2020. And farm chemicals and seed Supply New Farm has slumped to a first-half $13.6 million loss on the back of China-raising environmental standards and prolonged drought in eastern Australia. Earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortisation of $120.9 million were down 2% on the same time as the performance of its North American, Latin American and seed technology businesses helped make up for some of the pain in Australia and Europe. And TPG Telecom's first-half profit plunged 76.3% after massive impairments to its abandoned mobile network. However, the Internet service provider reported a modest rise in earnings and underlying profit once this expensive one-off impairment was taken into account, largely thanks to contracts with Vodafone and Hutchinson, Australia. Net profit in the six months ended January 31st fell to 47.4 million, down from 199.8 million in the year-earlier period. A food delivery company, popular with so-called social media influencers, has collapsed leaving customers without their prepaid meals. 5.4, which at one point said it had 20,000 customers and an annual revenue of $12 said it had entered administration in the face of increasing competition and our cost to serve. 5.4 had more than 200,000 followers on Facebook and almost 30,000 Instagram followers and relied on social media influencers and sports stars to promote its products. And Coles and Aldi supermarkets across Australia this week increased the price of their milk, in support of the nation's embattled dairy farmers. An extra 10 cents per litre will be added to the cost of Coles brand and Farmdale fresh two and three litre varieties. The announcement is a backflip on the supermarket's decision last month to keep its milk at $1 a litre milk. At the time, Federal Agricultural Minister, David Littleproud, savaged the move, dubbing it a $1 milk disaster. And finally, The Australian Prudential Regulation Authority is warning banks, insurers and superannuation funds to do more than just to disclose climate risks. They must take action to address them. APRA, the regulator charged with overseeing the soundness of Australia's financial system, says it will increase its scrutiny on how financial services companies are changing their businesses to protect themselves against the physical, regulatory and economic effects of climate change. The warning from APRA's Head of Insurance, Jeff Summerhays, follows a survey of financial services companies' attitudes to climate change. APRA probed 38 large banks, insurers and super funds on the issue. A third of respondents cited climate change as a material risk to their business, with reputational damage, flooding, regulatory changes and cyclones the top concerns. It also followed a landmark speech by Reserve Bank of Australia Deputy Governor Guy DeBell that failure to act on climate change could hit the Australian economy with implications for monetary policy. Australia's three financial regulators, APRA, the RBA and the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, have now all confirmed climate change as an area of major financial concern. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Kevin Sherry, the Executive Director, Global Business Development at Enterprise Ireland. We'll be talking about some new deals for Irish companies in Australia and the reality of Brexit for Irish and Australian exporters. And I'll be talking to economist David Kukulis about what's happening in the Australian economy. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBZZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a great week. Take care, be good, and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week.
2: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues